0: Hello again, everybody, and uh, welcome to the weekly instalment of What Would the Smart Party Do? This week we are discussing the future. Where we talk about the past a lot. This week, myself, my good friend Gaz. Hello, Gaz.
1: Hello, Baz. How are you doing?
0: I'm really good, thanks. Really good. Um, and we've had some questions come in from our ever-loving Patreons. Head on over to Patreon.com/slash/TheSmartParty to see what's going on over there. There's some fantastic questions coming in from the lovely people who chuck us a couple of dollars every now and again just to listen to our dulcet tones and um, we've been asked a real tricky one to begin with guys so uh, we've been asked about what do we see the future of role-playing as Um, and I've been scratching my head on this for the last couple of days to be honest and um, it's not an easy question to answer so I'm immediately going to throw it over to you what's your first thoughts what are things going to look like I don't know this time next year maybe five years maybe 50 years from now um, there's no limits on this kind of stuff and I'm sure people will come back and tell us how wrong we got it if we're still doing this in 2050. Uh, but what's the future of role-playing look like from your perspective, mate?
1: Oh, man, when you said the future, I thought I was going to get to talk about Traveller again.
0: Hey. No, maybe not.
1: Um, well, Ooh, you can't text anyone in Traveller. That's not the future. That's the past. <laughs> well, let's have a think about it. So we can break it down into a bunch of stuff. So there's what will games look like, what will the industry look like, what will people do? Um... So let's uh, let's start then with something that's happening that's quite contemporary at the minute and look at Chaosium, because they're uh, going through a bit of an upheaval at the minute. It got to a point where one of the old members had uh, sadly passed away. That left to some shares going, uh, out, distributed amongst who was left, and then from there it's gone all over the place. Uh, and now they're shutting down their physical office, they've got a bunch of new guys in, uh, and, you know, as usual the role-playing crowd are suggesting that uh, the world's going to end and it's, it's looking bad for the future, but I think it's looking good. And I think one of the things they've done or are doing in the process of doing is going for a more distributed model on how they're producing their games and where people are. Because for years and years, Chaosium's had a warehouse and an office and that made it feel like a real company, I guess, despite, you know, or regardless, regardless of whether they were actually producing stuff or all the rest of it. But now they've got a guy who lives in Germany, there's one who lives in the UK, there's someone else in Finland, someone else in the U- in the US... All over the place. So now they're going to have a virtual office. And I think that's probably something that's going to happen more and more. Is that people are going to be more spread out. We're more of a global society. Certainly with this, with Google Hangouts that we're using for these podcasts here and all that kind of stuff. It's easy to have a games company that's actually a bunch of people separated by thousands of miles, but you can still all work together. I don't think there needs to be an office or a warehouse anymore. You can pay people
0: to deliver books for you. What do you reckon to that? Uh, Yes, yes and yes. Um, Yeah, similar thoughts. I think Chaosium is a really good example, actually, because, I mean, Cthulhu's not going anywhere in a hurry. Uh, There's always going to be Cthulhu. It almost doesn't matter what happens to role-playing. You know, if if all of your books explode overnight and publishing just ceases and no one's allowed to meet in rooms and roll funny-shaped dice, somehow Cthulhu will still get involved in the act. Um, Because it's just been such a presence, hasn't it, since since it landed in what eighty one or something, you cannot move for Call of Cthulhu and it's of a, a much wider scope than just the role playing game and, and always has been of course. And it just will not die, which is, you know, apropos, I suppose, or opposite. It's uh it's 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 now way bigger than Chaosium, and it's arguably it's enough to keep Chaosium going when those times have been really tough. Um and the love for that kind of property is going to always have somebody scribbling away on a piece of paper or tapping into a laptop. And and with the ease of publishing now, which is only going to get easier over the next few years and certainly decades, that will never go away. Um, I don't know if it will ever be the biggest thing in role-playing. Maybe it is now if you just look at the breadth of its appeal. I'm not sure about that. But I don't think that's going away. I think that will only get stronger. And the return of something like Chaosium from near death is is proof i think that that good ideas plus fans plus ease of technology means this this hobby will never die the industry is going to have ups and downs there's no doubt about that at all but i I share your positivity on the hobby i think five years from now the hobby will be bigger than it is today 50 years from now it gets a bit trickier to kind of predict the future of course it does Um, but i don't think the hobby will ever die away now i think it's here to stay in the same way that music is here to stay. And I'm sure that won't be the last time I use that as an analogy over the next half hour or so. But it's too late now. Role-playing is out there as an activity, um, and it can't be killed because it isn't controlled by the industry.
1: Yeah, I think we've seen seen crowdfunding and uh, user content and all that stuff becoming a a bigger and bigger thing. So uh, just today at time recording... The Delta Green Kickstarter has gone on live, which is another flavour of Cthulhu, you could argue, although nothing really to do with Chaosium. And that's half funded, $20,000 in the space of a few hours. So it mm. will no doubt fund and overfund. And you think, uh, I think generally we've just got the access to stuff we wanted. Before, if you wanted a game of Delta Green, before we had the internet and Google Hangouts and all that kind of stuff, you're, you had to struggle to find someone. You were lucky if you saw a game at a convention sometimes. But now you can find hundreds if not thousands of people involved and they're willing to throw money at it as well. They're eager to get involved. And how Art Dream are looking at doing some of their scenario writing is they've equally recently announced um, a call for pitches, basically. So they're looking for four, or 500 words pitches and then they're going to get some people to write 10,000-word scenarios off the back of that, at least that's the idea, and pay six cents a word, which is actually, for the role-playing industry, a good rate. Yeah, that's quite strong, actually, isn't it? Yeah, but I think it, we're moving away from the days where you used to have a role playing company and staff writers. Uh, in many, I mean, you still have, uh, you know, your D and D's and all the rest of it. But a lot of games these days are getting their their money from people, getting their writers from whoever's available, getting money up front, uh, being able to print the right number of books. I think it's a, becoming more an inclusive industry. Uh, as as much as the hobby is, I think the industry itself is getting more inclusive and just sort of searching out finding hidden talent. Almost, you know, if you are putting a call out for scenario writers, it's a bit like to use the music analogy. You know, those agents going around all these little gigs or listening to podcasts online or little YouTube clips and finding out a good musician to discover someone. That's basically now what role play luminaries are doing to capture the latest writing talent. Mm.
0: Yeah, 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 that's right. I mean, I think the hobby is is going to be in rude health for that very reason because it's been. It's been diversified, and it's there's no more all of the eggs in the basket of Wizards of the Coast. You've got you've got tiny hobbies everywhere, uh, some up to a decent size scale as well. That you know, a one or two man publishing outfit can look on the shelves of your game shop as professional and as well produced as anything from one of the old mid tier publishers, and, and often better than the top tier publishers. So I think the hobby cannot cannot go down at this point, and I think it will only grow. And people have been talking about the death of role playing since it started. It doesn't really appear to be any sign of that happening. I think Gen Con attendance was up again this year, which is bonkers, really. All right, so D and D's come back with a, with a, a strong offering this year, but you know, the, the the massive hobby underneath that is always growing, and and it can't die now because I think you're right about technology. I think that the changes we'll see in the future over the next few years at a hobby level, which is the level of you know, around your gaming table or your circle of friends or your virtual circle of friends, is going to be driven by changes in technology and the way that we communicate. Now, that's that's not going to be terribly easy to predict because the way we communicate has changed so much in the last 10 years, even if you think back to when Delta Green was released, to what Delta Green is attempting to do now is massively different. When you look at stuff like Hangouts, and it's still got a few issues, it does break down occasionally, it can be a bit laggy. It's you know, we've played loads of games over Hangouts, haven't we guys? And and it's great, but it it's not perfect. But it will be, it will be in, in fairly short order, it just will. And, you know, we're at the really early days of communications technology or mobile communications technology or virtual communications, and that's gonna change everything it's going to make games so much easier to play because the one thing you do need to play role-playing games with is a group of people in the same environment. And that was really difficult in the 70s and 80s when, when gaming was booming and it needed to be super mainstream and, and to sort of burst into the mainstream to get that going so that it happened in schools and universities and people would play it in their lunch breaks and it was on cartoons on telly. I don't think that's going to come back. I don't think gaming is going to get into the mainstream. So to keep those networks going, you've got to have ways of speaking to people. So I think technology is going to do bonkers things. I doubt we'll be doing you know, virtual reality stuff, because when computers got really good, everyone said that was going to kill role-playing. Well, it hasn't at all, I don't think. It's made people into gamers in a very generic sense, and I'm sure some of those have come down the gravity well towards role-playing games that... Invented the words levels and experience points and stuff like that, so I don't think computer gaming is going to kill it, and um and I don't I don't think it could because you know that that communication with real people is the stuff that matters. Yeah. Absolutely. So yeah, ho- hobbies in good state for me, mate.
1: Yeah, right. I think you're right about technology as well. I mean, there's there's government purpose at the minute where you know if your broadband provider is not providing twenty meg, then they're in trouble at the minute told off for it, and that's only going to get faster and faster and faster, and that's obviously not led by the role-playing community, it's just the way the world works, but role-playing will definitely benefit from how better communications are getting, and speeds and reliability and all the rest of it, it's only going to get more and more useful as time goes on, Mm -hmm. so I I can't, that's just going to be another enabler and I think another thing that will be interesting to see in the future, I'm not sure how it will all shake out, but Definitely geek cultures getting more popular. Uh, stuff like, you know, Firefly and Serenity. That still has a massive following 10, 15 years after the last episode I had. It only ran for a season and one film. But, uh, Comic Con in San Diego, there's now people are struggling to get boats. It's, you know, you talk about Jane Con expanding. That place, people are hiring boats and parking them up, but you can now can't get a hold of boats in time to be, to be able to get accommodation anywhere near that that sort of uh, convention so there will always be a bleed off from that sort of place into role playing we are the, like the little red-headed stepchild of the geek culture environment unfortunately there's a lot more people who play computer games or read comics than there are do role-playing games but there's always going to be a certain amount of new recruits we get from that area and if you look at gaming in general in the UK UK Games Expo that's got thousands of people and it's just been going from strength to strength to strength and it's not looking like slowing down in fact so that next year, I believe, as well as the Metropole, they've got uh, part of the NEC as well, because they just don't have enough space. I was playing Netrunner in a tent outside the hotel last year, because they they physically didn't have any rooms left. So, I think geek culture's definitely getting more and more mainstream, uh, and that can only help our hobby as well. People say that other things kill it, but I don't know computer games, getting people into the sort of fantasy or science fiction worlds helps draw some people into role-playing. And uh, another aspect I think that's helping really well at the minute is In order to survive, your friendly local game stores are doing loads and loads of games nights now. It used to be that you'd have in the sort of GW model uh, one games night a week, maybe two, maybe something on a weekend. Now, in order to compete with online stores, it's about getting people in in the store and creating some kind of ambience and getting clubs together and that rapport with your customers. Every night of the week at Chimera in Nottingham, there's something going on from the minute work finishes till 10 at night. And there's more and more of that happening. I think uh, the growth in community and acceptance and being able to just go somewhere and play games at game cafes, at stores, wherever. I think that's only going to help to strengthen the hobby as well.
0: Yeah, there's, there's there's more places now to game within twenty miles of me than there's ever been. And I used to have to sort of scour the the back pages of White Dwarf looking for gaming clubs and Arcane magazine and stuff like that. And you still have to, to an extent, you know, there's always people looking for gaming groups and gamers, but there's a venues you can just rock up to now. And, um, oh, God, I wish there, were, there was one of those cafes near me, uh, Snakes and Lattes, you know, those board game clubs. There's, I mean, some of my old pubs that I used to go to for a drink, spit and sawdust places. I would never have thought about getting out a board game in one of those places a few years ago. Now, if you walk in there on a Tuesday night, it'd be very difficult to get table room for the amount of people playing board games. And these board games, by the way, they're the they're the real deal they're about as close to a role-playing game as you get they just happen to have a board there uh, and, and i think that's that's got to help as well if we if we all broaden our definition of what rpgs are then there's even more going on than you think is going on because it definitely for me includes a huge element of that board game culture there's all of the chat room stuff where people are just you know on internet forums, pretending to be someone else and just spinning out a story between them and their powers. There's loads of role play going on all over the place. And like you say, more publicly and publicly accepted than ever. Not that I think it wasn't ever publicly accepted. I think we were our own, our own worst enemy for wanting to sit on a bus and read an Earththorn supplement. But, it, but now there's no excuse at all because everybody goes to see Avengers movies when they come out and Game of Thrones is the thing that people talk about on a Monday morning over the water cooler so yeah geek acceptance great what's it do for gaming it's got to bring more people to us I wish we were more accessible <laughs> you know I think we're as, as an industry and as a community we're definitely missing a trick on on having a good easy visible gateway for the for the gaming curious um, but all it's going to do is bring in new gamers. And then you've got all of the kids of the gamers of my age, in my 40s, who are also growing up and looking through my old collections of stuff too. So, you know, I've gone and spawned a bunch of new gamers and I'm not the only one who's done that. I don't think we're ever going to have problems finding people who want to get their elf on. Um, yeah, so. well, yeah, I
1: agree. But I wasn't going to ask you about this. So I'm glad you kind of segued into it for me. Is um, Are we going to get pushed out? Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't see like, like hordes of younger people getting into role playing games or at, at conventions. But they pro- there are younger people getting into uh, games, obviously, with this, you know, with the numbers sold and the popularity of D&D, Obviously, there's younger people doing that. Um, mm-hmm. but, you know, we don't really see them or I don't see them as much at conventions necessarily. Maybe Dragon Meat and Games Expo and stuff like that, but they're more hardcore gaming cons. I don't see as many. And I'm wondering if we're going to become a bit of a niche, if you know what I mean. And, uh, you know, when you, you're saying your kids growing up, and I know a lot of fellow gamers that, that you talk about have got kids all the way up to 18 and, until they become adults. But is there a point where there's this sort of thing like, I don't want to do what dad wants to do? You know what I mean? Or they'll yeah, want to play a totally. cool game and not the one you want to do. So we're going to be kind of pensioned off in our own little area and have an old people's convention while everybody else carries on and the hobby rolls on without us.
0: Yeah, well, well yes, it, it will, but not in a bad way. So so my take on this would be, you know, let's go back to the music analogy again. Um, and all it means really is that I'm going to gigs to see classic rock bands and Fleetwood Mac reunions, and my kids are going to see Little Mix. And we're both into music. We're going is. to like arenas and throwing glitter in the air or whatever it is you crazy kids do these days and I'm going and putting my thumbs in the corner of my waistcoat and nodding my head long, drinking a pint of warm bitter, looking at some hoary old seventies guitarist. We're both going to gigs. We're both into music. It's not right for kids to like dad stuff. And that's absolutely fine. It's it wouldn't be right for my kids to carry on playing D&D with me when they're in their 20s because I think we'll both be really embarrassed by that. <laughs> um, but I do, but I, as long as my kids become GMs and, uh, and players and are doing their thing to exercise their creativity and they're maybe rolling a D4 or maybe pressing a button on their laptop, I don't really care. But we're both going to be gamers. And I think gaming is so broad that it's possible and desirable for that to happen. Conventions, I think, I think that is going to see a change. I think you bang on because the conventions that we have been going to for the last twenty odd years, I think they are shrinking. That style of convention, but but shrinking in in perhaps you know population numbers, but probably increasing in quality and increasing in their focus. You know, it's totally viable to have a convention around one game, um, and always has been with stuff like you know Continuum. And it's even more viable now to have a convention that's probably only got 10 people at it. But those 10 people are absolutely mad set on playing their particular type of Fading Suns, for example, or whatever it is. Or we could have a Savage Worlds Con. And those things might get small and compact and bijou. You look at stuff like Seven Hills. I think that's a success by anyone's standards. But it doesn't have 400, 500 people there. And it's the better for it. There's, there's going to be enough space in the calendar and your expos as you mentioned earlier might turn into that kind of little mixed gig where all the cool kids go because it's crazy and colourful there's stuff to see stuff to hear um, and I'll be over in my potting shed with my graph paper and my battle mat that's fine it's all gaming but I, I, I think that the conventions you and I go to probably will shrink down but good we might lose some chaff along the way
1: <laughs> yeah it is a mixed bag I mean i I was sort of exaggerating for the uh, for effect there a little bit because things like um, Conception on the south coast has been sold out and he's still selling out. So that's not showing mm. any sign of getting less popular. But yeah, definitely things like there's um, the London Indie Meet that happens every month, which is, um, I would say, towards story games. I don't think I'll get challenged too strongly if I say that, although anything could be played there. But that's just like a, a communal collective that chips some money into a pot every now and again to pay for the pub room. And then they all meet up and have a very egalitarian way of working out who pays what. But uh, I know that uh, Guy Milner, a good friend of ours, uh, he Mm -hmm. moved to Leeds recently and he's just started up a Leeds meet. And he's just going to have booked a couple of uh, days and going to have some people turn up and play some games and that sort of thing. I think you're right in terms of traditional conventions. Maybe the mid-sized ones might struggle a little bit these days, but in terms of little pop-up ones or... Someone just saying, you know what? I want to play some games on this weekend. Who wants to come? And using social media to generate some interest. There's a load more of them happening these days. And to be fair, all you need to play a game is you and you know three or four other people, and that's a sort of mini convention already. So it's it's looking healthy. It's just, um, yeah, perhaps the mid-sized conventions might struggle a little bit. It's either going to be big or it's going to be small and agile. I think that's the way that it's going to go in the future.
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. And I think people will exercise their choice because. I could go to a convention almost every weekend of the year if I had the money and the time and I don't have either nobody's got unlimited resources so you do have to now be a little bit more discriminating with your with your choice of calendar and and there's options Uh, there's if you wanted to do a big weekend con in the UK these days you'd have to pick your time in the year quite carefully I think because a lot of the year is kind of booked out already and and I'm sure, you know, we both know people who will get their holiday allowance from work and they will drop it all on conventions because they know what they want to do for the year. So, you know, there's only so much time to go around and, you know, but competition is a good thing. So if if gaming conventions really want to survive, I think they need to probably hone in on the quality a bit and those big generic conventions will just have to work at a different scale and let them do that and, and maybe... That there there you have a direct analogy for the way that publishing versus hobby is going to be over the next ten, twenty years, where maybe the publishers will have to start working at different scales, but the hobby will be nicely atomized with everybody doing something that they love with just a few quality fans rather than just taking a kind of compromise position on doing a popular game because it's easy to get one for. that doesn't seem to be so important anymore. you can get a game for anything. Yeah, it's um, it's interesting.
1: Definitely the sort of pop-up games or crowdfunded or all the rest of it, that's definitely taken off and doing really well. Um, so how do you, is there always going to be a place for a D&D then? Is there always going to be a big flagship game that's, that people consider synonymous with role-playing? You know what I mean? If you say I'm into role-playing games, people generally say, oh, you mean D&D? And that's kind of like mm-hmm. the, the byword. In, in like 10, 20, 30 years' time, is that still going to be the case?
0: Yeah, I think so. There always has been a flagship, hasn't there? So um, there's no reason to think that there wouldn't be one in the future. I I don't know if anything will ever replace D&D as the, the kind of generic term like we have Hoover over here in the UK means every vacuum cleaner. And I'm sure Hoover are delighted with that, even though when you go and buy your vacuum cleaner, you don't say I'm only interested in the Hoover brand. That's not how it works. No, you buy a Dyson. Um, yeah, exactly, exactly. And that, and there, there you go. There's another analogy for gaming, right there, isn't there? You know, and, and when I worked at Games Workshop, everybody came in and asked for Warhammer's, and and actually they came in asking for D and D, or said, "Is this that D and D game?" You know, that that name recognition is enough for people. I think what will actually happen, and this is yeah, this is tricky stuff because I'm no massive business analyst, but I know my D and D, and I know Hasbro, and I know Wizards of the Coast reasonably well. From an outsider's perspective, I think Hasbro will not divest itself of the d and brand because they have appeared to be happy over their history to have brands or intellectual property and not necessarily do anything proactive with it, but just hang on to it because, well, why not? It doesn't cost them anything particularly to keep that brand. And I think the D D brand is strong enough that it's maybe better leveraged from a financial point of view in movies and video games and Legos and things like that. And there's definitely a sense that the current fifth edition of D D is there really is a bit of a placeholder so that they can say they've got an RPG got d called cool d out there. And it is good. I'm not dissing the game, it's a good, good system. But it's not exactly revolutionary. It's there to sort of like keep old ha- old timers like me happy and for there to be D&D on the shelves. I think it will see a revision in the next few years, but that revision will be very, very light-touch indeed. I think it will be new covers and slightly more than errata, not much more than that. And I think that's the way that Monopoly gets treated. So I think that will always just chug along being itself. Very few big releases for that, and the ones we do see will be in other brands. Um, And that will be D&D. Now, the the question is underneath that is what happens with everybody who's been trying to take D&D's crown since it was invented. So you're looking at stuff like Pathfinder. Arguably, you're looking at Fantasy Flight games with their Star Wars stuff, definitely. Um, but, you know, sticking with Pathfinder for a bit, that will be interesting. Over the next five years, something has to happen with them. And I don't know what Paizo are going to do because if they do Pathfinder 2, they're taking a massive gamble. On blowing all the goodwill they got from the people who wanted d and d three to live forever um or have they built up enough goodwill that they can make a new version of a game that's built on the bones of an old one that's that's going to be really tricky for them to navigate and they they are the they're the second in line to be the to be the brand name I'm sure there's loads of people probably in America who call d and d now they they actually use word pathfinder instead of d and d to call it that hobby don't know if it's got that kind of impact, but I think that second tier, that'll be really, really interesting because Chaosium ain't going to be it. No one's going to say Pendragon when they talk about gaming as a whole, (laughs) are they? despite our wishes, it ain't going to
1: happen <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm running a convention this weekend, maybe that'll change it all who
0: knows yeah, yeah that's all we've been, <laughs> that's all we've been waiting for well that's talking about the future of gaming. You've got this weekend planned that's more than usual <laughs> <laughs> that's five days into the future people, and you can guarantee it um so yeah that the the, the publishing of d and d is i think it's still massively important. People look at that people in in city columns for newspapers look at that it still gets a huge amount of exposure um, and that brand recognition that, that nobody else can have at this point because it's already been invented. So I think what happens with D&D is important and D&D is still going to be the thing that trickles in a lot of people to other games. It's, and if D&D does well, we all do well.
1: Yeah. So, so here's another one for you then. Thinking of um, stuff like computer games that have downloadable content and um, you could buy add-ons now. And it used to be the case that, you know, you got a full, complete, lovely game, and then they'd produce some extra scenarios or maps or whatever else for it, was, and you could buy them later, and that was amazing. And now it seems to be you get half a game, and you have to buy the rest of it in small chunks. And they've kind of monetized it, much the way that you used to get DVD extras, and they thought they were a good thing, and now DVDs are built with the extras already in mind, if you know what I mean. So hmm. D&D did quite well off producing the character generator software and stuff like that. Yep. Is that going to happen more? I mean, rather than buying splat books and all the rest of it, do you think there's any scope for that kind of model where you'll buy D&D and you'll get your basic classes, but if you want a nightshade or whatever, some other cool, sexy class, you can buy that as an add-on? Is that something that might happen? And is that a way of monetizing players? Because I think, as we've discussed before, most of the time the DM buys all the stuff, including players' guides and stuff like that, because players often don't buy kit... Yeah, uh, it's you know a generalisation, but mm. it's something we found in our in our history. So, is there a chance for just digital content that can be downloaded, and would it be able to be purchased in little packs like uh, Blood Bowl? People are talking about recently. There's a, an app for that computer game and stuff, mm. but you only get humans and orcs. If you want to play a game or
0: something else, you got to buy it. So, is that going to happen? Nope. And the reason it's not going to happen is because it got tried in fourth edition and ran into an enormous wall of conservative gamers and gamers are inherently conservative in the in the dnd spectrum i count myself among them we fear change um yeah the ddi dungeon dragons insider made an awful lot of money i don't know how much it cost to set up probably not very much but it generated an awful lot of subscriptions but the wailing and gnashing of teeth about the idea that you might be able to buy a game with four core classes in it but if you want your warlock, like you say, you've got to spend an extra dollar to unlock it or or buy your spells in random booster packs. Nah, absolutely was never, ever, ever gonna fly. With the fan base as was. Now, I, I think I think you've you've got a really good insight there, Gaz, in that people who play on their computers and their tablets and so on have absolutely no problem with in app purchasing. And I think that some of the reason for that is because the entry point is really, really low, isn't it? You normally start with a freebie and you're spending 50p a pound, two pounds on some extra content. So if you were going to do that with a system like D&D, you can't really expect people to be spending a hundred bucks on three core books and then some extra money on the extras. So the, the whole thing has to be turned around. And at the end of the day, Role-playing publishers are still quite conservative in their formatting because even with the advent of PDF, everything still looks like a book. It's basically a big textbook, and it's still full of pictures, and it's still got a colour cover on it with an action scene. Even in the story games field, it's it's all designed to be a book. Uh, It doesn't matter really how many pages are in it. And and people love their books, and gaming is still a bibliophiles thing. So I I think if role-playing does want to change its format... It's probably going to have to ask itself the question: Why should I bother? If if gaming could speak, it would say: Why should I bother? Because the hobby appears to be growing, and there's still money to be made, and and I can still do a Kickstarter for a a superhero game powered by the apocalypse and make twenty four thousand dollars in pledges in less than six hours. It, you know, why, why why am I around? So you would think that that would be a really transferable thing into gaming, but it really bounced off of fourth edition quite hard. Um, and, and Wizards of the Coast have, have climbed back from their kind of revolutionary, innovative stance on what to do with their, their main brand. And, and they've never managed to get their digital initiatives working again. There still really isn't one for fifth edition as we speak. And, and that game's been out for over a year. So I, I think no, but who knows? 20 years time could be all different. It'd be nice to pay see. For it? Would you, would you do it in, in your game of choice? Would you? Would you pay per splat?
1: No. There I've, you go. I begrudgingly bought an extra droid on Star Wars Commander because I've played it for about a year now, so I think it's worth the 30p or whatever it was I paid
0: for. <laughs> <laughs> and there's but, the difference, isn't it? I mean, 30p <laughs> you, you might go for, but if it was a pound, you would never go there because that's really A ridiculous you crazy? sum of money. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I think as I'm drinking my 3 pound 50 latte in a Starbucks somewhere. <laughs> I'm not paying 69p for that. Yeah, funny isn't it what people are willing to pay for and what they're not.
0: I'll tell you what they are willing to pay for, miniatures and cards. And, yeah. and that that might be that might be another way of looking at the same the same challenge I suppose of what to do going forward because Games Workshop's recent move with Warhammer I think is a salutary lesson that, that these guys exist to to make money. They are not stupid people. And their recent decision to blow up the Warhammer world, um, take all of the Warhammer rules, make them four pages long and review, reveal them for free to everybody and just use that simply as a lever to, to let people buy miniatures, expensive miniatures, That's that's either a brave move or a stupid move. I think it's brave and I think it'll work for them because, like I say, these guys know how to run a business. And um, and they gen- they generate their cash with no gaming of they've taken games out of Games Workshop at this point and arguably always had done and uh, good for them I think they're trying something new
1: yeah all about the tight soldiers well to take us back to to the beginning when I mentioned Castlem I think they're doing a similar thing to to one of the threads at least if you look at um, BRP at one mm. point they had brought out a a go- uh, big gold book which big fat real book with all the rules you can imagine you wanting for brp and then you've got to ask yourself how many rules you want well under the new leadership the, the current thinking according to the blog anyways they're going to bring out a brp essentials which is 32 pages long which i think's good so it's kind of following the warhammer path if you know what i mean or yeah. presumably thought of it independently i'm not suggesting one led to the other but that idea of having a, a reasonably sized core module and then you you Get your extra stuff afterwards. I think's fine. It's certainly worked for things like Savage Worlds, where it must have been a lost leader, but they were selling the like the Explore editions for a fiver, if that less than I think in the states. Uh, but off the back of that, you then sell loads of different settings and supplements and all the rest of it. There's fan based things, there's crowd funded things. I think getting your lost leader and just getting your core brand is the way forward, like they do with you know consoles. Your Xboxes mm-hmm. and PS4s aren't being sold making a massive profit is the games they make the profit on. So it'd be good to see companies sort of following that model of getting your basic stuff that you can play with out there and then you pay because you want to pay for the extra stuff because it is valuable to you. Not that you need it. It's just exciting and interesting.
0: Yeah, agreed. GURPS Lite did that a long time ago. For a long time, that must have worked because I've got a copy of GURPS Lite and it made me buy GURPS Sourcebooks without having the core set for a long time. That was enough of a gateway. And uh, back at D&D, uh, D&D Basic is online and for free. And that's, you know, a universally lauded thing that they've done. Um, I've got my own issues with whether it's actually a basic D&D or not. I think it's just a stripped-back D&D, but it's just as complex as anything else. I don't think it's necessarily a great gateway product, but it is free. Um, so D&D is available to play for nothing, assuming you've got a computer. And why wouldn't you assume that now? So, so yeah, I, I think, you know, that is potentially a way to go for publishers to get the basic rules of the game out there but then the question has always been how do you monetize the game once the game is in players hands Um, and i think the smart role-playing companies have maybe realized well maybe you don't actually (laughs) maybe we don't maybe we monetize it a different way and i don't think and that's going to be the interesting challenge over the next five ten twenty years is how do publishers monetize their stuff um, and it might be through cards, minis, stuff,
1: don't know. Digital content, I think, Baz. If you look at Star Wars, we were the earlier, and they, they, you can buy a set of dice, or you get some, but they're not quite enough. You can use them, but you mm-hmm. have to re-roll one of them. So you have to buy a whole new set just to roll the right number of dice. Oh, that's annoying. It's, it, it is a bit of a tactic with FG, I have to say. They do it with Netrunner. There's these consoles, you can have three of them, but you only get one in a core set. So to be able to play a three in a deck, which is the maximum, you have to buy three core sets. for for a very few number of cards. Cheeky buggers, but they know exactly what they're doing. In Star Wars, you can get a dice roller app. You get as many dice as you want in that, and you use your phone for it. Not the same. It's not the same (laughs) for us, (laughs) but if you're thinking about your kids, or their kids maybe, and they're growing up on Mm. digital stuff, so that now, you know, there's loads of stuff on YouTube where you put a magazine in front of a baby and it tries to swipe the page because it thinks something should Mm. should work, you know, interact, because that's what it's used to. Mm. My friend's four-year-old recently was reorganizing her folder structures for her and all the rest of it. She was just like, "How are you doing that, Chloe?" Wow. And, and wow. she couldn't touch. She couldn't type. She wanted Chloe's folder on this folder. She couldn't do do that because she couldn't type or spell. But she can reorganize a, a you know a folder structure and move things about and all the rest of it. So mm. give it ten years. Are we not going to be in a situation where rather than go and buy physical dice, you know, a bunch of kids who want to just be able to download download the app, you turn up to a convention. Mm. What dice do I need? Okay, cool. I'll get them for fifty p from the app store.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. My my eight year old who who loves all of the games I have in my garage, and and they are many and varied. We played Hero Clicks last week, and we'll probably play I don't know rocket ships from Mars next week. And we're always going for my old stuff, and he loves all the the role playing that I've stuff that I've done with him too, from D and D through to White Hack, to Piso Beginner Box, all kinds of stuff. But his favorite thing is Skylanders which is stuff that you can get for the Wii and the PlayStation. It's kids role-playing stuff with collectible figures. And those collectible figures are the character on the screen and they level up and you can swap them with your mates and bring them around each other's houses. Skylanders is brilliant. It's really good. And it's, it's as close to basic D&D from the 80s as you can imagine, just in its style of getting kids to talk about it at playtime at school and go around each other's houses with some stuff in their bag on a Saturday and hop onto the console around that house, which would have been the kitchen table back in the day, and have that kind of shared experience. But stuff that you can do on your own at home as well, and that's incredible. So again, if you, if we broaden the definition of role-playing, role-playing is going to be fine. But if we keep the definition of role-playing as five people sat around the table with pens and pencils and bits of paper and polyhedrals, I think it's only going to be okay in the sense that uh, a model railroading is okay and (laughs) historical wargaming is okay and and they are they're very okay enough to you know still put magazines on the shelves of WH Smiths and other news agents and still have a you know big shows Olympia every year but are they growing nah they've probably got people dying off from old age at one end and their sons and daughters are still coming into the hobby at the other but it's probably a zero-sum game
1: yeah absolutely I mean there are some people who will sneer at that sort of stuff but you know, model railways and war games have got more magazines on the shelves than role playing's ever had, and, True. and still have. True. You know, um, mm-hmm. yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think there's a, you know, when when I was a kid and learning about beer and going out and stuff like that, there was old guys playing gin rummy or whist or whatever in a corner, and you used to think what are them old guys up to? But they were having a fine old time, and that could well be that how pen and paper role playing games go, if you know what I mean. That the people like us still mm-hmm. playing them in the retirement homes, and kids will be doing their own thing online, digitally or, or otherwise but I can, I can certainly see as um, technology improves, you could there's a shared space there where you still could get around a table do you know mm-hmm. what I mean, with projectors or if you could get um, uh, some kind of screen that you can roll up or fold away or yep. that kind of stuff if you could get one of them out and then through Wi-Fi or Bluetooth or whatever the, the latest technology is, throw figures onto a screen and have little animations for where your arcs are and stuff like that and have do proper charges and everyone's connected to the same web space and can move their character mm-hmm. about and send them out, I, I could see it happening, like some sort of integration between a computer game and a, a role-playing game that you can kind of keep in your pocket and just chuck out whenever you want.
0: Yeah, because it's close now, isn't it? There's there's people do that, they try and do that with projectors and using big flat-screen TVs as a table because you can get a big enough flat-screen TV now that you can sit around it if you lay it horizontally. So that's close. Fast forward oh, only 10 years probably and that will be as nothing. But what I don't think we'll see... And um, I could be wrong. Oh, I'll be dead before anyone can tell me. But what I don't think we we'll see is what you would call computer game role-playing games, where the computer is as good as a human GM, or, or as good as that network and that, that bubble that you get around the table where everyone's bouncing off of each other. It's, it will always have to be, by its very nature, kind of robotic and railroady, even the best of them. You still know you're playing a computer RPG. You're not playing against a human GM. For for all of their weaknesses, they have their strengths too. But it's a dynamic relationship which we're gonna need AIs before we get that. And well, if there is ever an AI invented, it probably will be by a gamer, so maybe that'll be the first thing that happens. But <laughs> that would take as you aren't we? <laughs> probably, yeah, yeah. Skynet, you know, probably doesn't want to play GURPS. <laughs> oh, maybe it does actually. That's a kind of horrific thing that people do when they get out of control. <laughs> oh, It'd be nice to find
1: someone who does want to play. Um, yeah, I think I think you're right. Uh, uh, an interesting thing I think of the multi, is it massive multi online role playing games. I the there are more that you get factions uh, in there who just who call themselves role players and don't want to go around. Yeah you know, killing things and skinning them and leveling up. They actually want to do the, the interaction talking bit. And you kind of want to introduce them to role playing properly, but you know, there's mm-hmm. still some stigma where it means getting immersed in that world to be able to pull them out and say, oh, let's have a real game. And then you find out they live in Holland or Texas or something. <laughs> There is online gaming, so I, th- I think even amongst computer gamers, there are people who strive for, like you say, that human interaction. There's only so much an AI can give you, and um, when you're playing a game where you've got a list of options you have to pick from in terms of what you want to say, rather than just saying something. And yeah, how, how's a computer going to do reincorporation of ideas and all that kind of stuff? You know, It's just not, the sophistication's not there yet. Maybe 50 years, who knows, when they've got satisfactory intelligence, but yeah. For the foreseeable future, there's nothing quite like having a real life human being there in front of you, is there?
0: No. And, and, you know, and when a computer power is that good, arguably it's just as easy to reach out to a real human being and have them say it. Because the, the, the craft of GMing, that, that urge to world build and to improvise and to create and to prep and to do the reading, that, that's a human urge. And that's not going to go away anytime soon. And I think we'll use technology to help us as GMs. We already are, you know, we're doing that a lot now. We might do it more in the future, but you know that that thing you do when you're sitting on a bus going somewhere, you're just thinking about next Wednesday's game, is never going to be taken away by a PC. Uh, it, it might help you with just basic note-taking functions through to doing stuff over virtual hangouts, but nah, you know you still want to you still want to dream up strange things for people to experience and do, don't you? You still want to think up your NPCs, and you still want to you know consider what on earth's going to happen when your plan hits the table with five crazy dudes who are going to just make a mockery of your plans, because that's half the fun. Plus, you're probably going to drink a few cups of tea and eat some crisps, and that's good.
1: Yeah, I think there's um, there's a mixture of things in there, like uh, I like making maps, I like drawing them. I get fun mm. out of that. I know some people don't view that kind of prep as uh, onerous and would hate to do it and would love, uh, for example, an automatic map generator, which I don't think can be that far off, where you just press a button and it creates a nice world for you, or a country, or a town or whatever else from a bunch of uh, files that it's got stored away but equally I think people could get fun out of that you create a a little country with your map making tool and then you sit down to populate it as you would an old dungeon back in the day and all the rest of it I think I think you're right I think technology is definitely going to help assist with things like that I'd love to have one that creates uh, random NPCs in terms of pictures because if you if you play any game like I don't know Skyrim or something like that there's a bewildering array of different facial expressions and eyebrows and all the rest of it, you can give your character. So the possibilities there are limitless. What I actually want someone to do is get all that and just allow me to print off some faces for different characters, and then I can have some N B C mm. pictures. It's got to be
0: doable. It's it not only doable, but done. Um, this was part of the virtual tabletop that was, that was done for the start of the 4E launch, um, and the whole virtual tabletop thing just sort of crashed and burned due to well, really unforeseen circumstances that involve a murder at one point. Look it up on Google, entertain yourselves when you're finished with this podcast. But um, but that virtual tabletop, one of the things it could do was exactly as you suggest, that bit that you get at the start of a video game. You pick your eyebrow colour and you've got a slowly rotating model on the screen and you you could build your character's looks from the absolute ground up and then use it as a token and import it into other people's tables you know, and have that kind of shared reality where the GM's mapping out a dungeon for you to explore and you're generating an avatar and you take it over there um through the power of tech. But but it, it didn't get anywhere. It doesn't mean it couldn't, but that kind of investment is going to be hard to do in a industry that arguably might be shrinking in dollar amount. Even though the hobby's blooming, um Paizo's recent MMO Kickstarter has raised millions of dollars but the projects had to be abandoned. They couldn't get the more millions of dollars they needed to make it actually happen. So the Pathfinder MMO is now as dead as it's going to be. And that's going to be a a salutary lesson to anybody attempting to to put that initial funding in. Because that's going to be the hard bit, isn't it? Where's the return on it?
1: Yeah, I I think um, it's interesting that big companies trying to do stuff in that kind of digital space often mess it up. And I'll give, Often, yeah. I'll give an example for kind of Netrunner in that um, there's a site called CardGameDB, which uh, a guy called, or his handle's DBO, but he produced all that for that, and you can build your own decks, and you've got the card database and all kinds of cool stuff, not just for Netrunner, but all kinds of games. And he was doing a brilliant job of that, and he got bought out by FFG, and now it's their official site, and from more or less the minute they paid for it and said it's ours now, it started going wrong, and it got slow, and it got mm. clunky, and it's just, I think, I can only presume, because this guy knew what he was doing, is the apparatus of having a games company on top of it meant that he didn't have the flexibility to do what he wanted, and things didn't work the same way they used to. And now people will use things like Meteor or DB, which are all um under threat of being closed down at any point. The, it's not been unusual for them to get a cease and desist order. In fact, one or two of them did, and then just started again. But there's definitely facility out there, given the 7 billion people in the world, for people to make good goals of this kind of stuff. I think the problem is, is getting a company that can take it over or sponsor it or whatever else, and do that without breaking the property and giving them the freedom mm-hmm. to do what they want. I seem to remember 7C back in the day, and our good friend uh, Simon who gave us one of the questions from Patreon, actually, this one, this very one. Um, he created a brilliant 7C site. It was miles better than the uh, the official one, and all they ever heard from people was like, well, why don't they pay this guy and make that the official site? But they insisted on having their own one, uh, and in the end, I think, might have even asked him to, see, to just, I sister can't remember, but, you know, it just seems that games companies don't have the manpower or wherewithal to provide these things. So I'm wondering in the future if they'll be able to, Sort of get their act together and be able to license other people who can produce it to do it better, and not interfere as much. Or do you think perhaps there's that little bit of fear there that it, something will get taken away from them, or there'll be an opportunity missed, or they'll lose some kind of control? Is that what it is?
0: Yeah, it's uh, the the really big companies just are so reluctant to do that sort of stuff. And you know, I've got another dozen stories of exactly the same thing happening, especially with D and D. For goodness' sake, I mean, when that virtual table that I was just talking about when that crashed and burned. There were so many brilliant fan sites. Masterplan is one that springs immediately to mind, which was a campaign manager. Absolutely awesome. Totally free. An absolute piece of heart. And, and again, you think, why can't Wizard of Coast just you know, chuck this guy a few dollars? Um, chuck him a lot of dollars, for goodness sake, and, and he'll do it for you. And he's doing it in his spare time. But no, um, I don't think that one specifically, but just cease and desist letters. Because the, really, the bigger company you get, well, as soon as you've got a legal department, things go awry for the hobbyist for the hobbyist not for the shareholder for anybody else but just for the hobbyist and and i get that having worked for a workshop for long enough i totally get that but bringing it all the way back full circle to the stuff you said at the beginning of this podcast if you're a a low tier operator or you're you're on life support and trying to get bigger doing the counterintuitive things of letting your fans help you out well, guess what? That seems to be a brilliant idea. <laughs> so it might be crowdsourcing your scenarios, or it might be, you know, does anybody know any good artists? Because we've got the next edition of this book written, but we don't have enough art for it yet. But we know there's a load of you crazy dudes out there who would do it for the, the pleasure of having your name in the credits. <laughs> it's not even expensive. So you know, if when you're when you're on your on your last legs or just starting out, it's easy to reach out to the fans. And it's easy for us to say, why don't the big corporations do it? Well, there's loads of reasons why not, and the answer is business with a capital B, and you know humans with a capital H. It just it gets unwieldy at that stage to be so free and easy with stuff. There's there's just too much weight behind bureaucracy and laws and politics and the rest of it. So, thinking about the future of RPGs, I think there are definitely the two strands of Industry and hobby will probably diverge even further, I would think, than they have already, and I don't think that's a bad thing for either. There'll be the big mainstream stuff for people who are time poor and cash rich, and they just want to buy an experience. And at the other end, there'll be the people who want to go to 50 conventions a year, and um, and have to, you know, maybe it won't cost them a fortune, but they'll have to put their time and dedication and effort into fanzines to keep their game going. That seems to me to be fine. That's choice. And
1: in terms of the middlemen, are role playing stores going to be something like rare bookshops now, where they're not the uh, W.A. Smiths or Waterstones or whatever else on the high street, but you have them tucked away in sleepy little roads behind the train station somewhere, and they've got all these mm-hmm. collectibles in? Because I know we're the old grognards of the hobby, or getting that way anyway. But you know, I've, I've got countless PDFs. I can't think of a single one I've read all the way through. I flicked through mm-hmm. some. Some I've downloaded, having paid good money for, it, and not even opened. I don't even know if the file works or not. If it's corrupted, you know I've just not even looked at it. <laughs> at least if I buy a book, I'll flick through it and look at the pictures. And you know, as you say before, when I mentioned dice rolling apps, you were like, "No, no, no, I, I want dice." You know, I want the physical yeah. artifacts. Is that going to be part of it? Is that going to be the cool sort of you know young musicians now who want to buy an old beat up guitar? Is that what role playing games and dice are going to be in a few
0: years' time? Yeah, probably. They they kind of are now, aren't they? You know, the friendly local game shops have always been. Slightly back alley operations, haven't they? That smell of patchouli oil and cat piss. They've always been odd little places. That's why whenever you go to a new town, you try and find one because the stock that's in there will be nothing like the one that you knew down the road. They're (laughs) never going to be the Costa coffee on the high street, are they? They've always been little Aladdin's caves. So there'll be strange little places and it, there'll always be room for them because, I mean, I, I work in retail now and I've done it all my life really and, and I've spent the last 20 years hearing about how the death of the high street has definitely happened. Well, it definitely hasn't at all. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a job. Um, and th- th- there will always be that high street full of foreseeable because people like to get together. And you said it earlier, these places are going to turn more into cafes uh, with gaming space that just happen to sell some books because that's kind of the way that Games Workshop does it. Now it's a miniature store that happens to sell some games, and arguably it's a gaming venue that just happens to sell some miniatures, because really they're going to do it through mail order, because that's where the money's at. Yeah. So I think there'll be a space for them, but they'll be small, and and it'll be tough for them, and they will have to be distinctive to survive, but the hobbyists will, I think, continue to produce probably really cool artefacts for gaming with, because that's what publishers have to do now. To avoid being eaten by stuff like Amazon and Kindle and digital downloads, their books have to be works of art again instead of just pulp, mass produced stuff. Now, forget about the content, it's actually got to be something that's worth physically handling and going to a store to buy and caress slightly. And I think, you know, games are in a really good space for that because they can do prestige products, can't they? with linen paper and people will always pay for colour art and I will <laughs> and uh, people just do and and if there happens to be a Cthulhu plushie on the till you'll drop it into the basket as well won't you a lot of people do yeah quite true okay well we're, we're coming to the end of our already Baz, surprisingly
1: That'll oh blimey I've
0: got a question though I've got one oh, more for go you on, then, Can we
1: squeeze one in? we're almost in the future already but go on let's have another question <sighs>
0: Let's stave off the future. I'm going to drag you back to the past of, the, of, of one week ago because my question was going to be, what future does the old school have? Because we spent all of last week talking about the old school renaissance, about people playing old games, and it struck me that if we fast forward 20 years, I think those old school games will still be going. People are still going to play 70s, 80s d d get that. But I wonder if in the year 2035 there would be an old school for vampire and all of the 90s stuff that people played when they were in college and then they get to be in their 40s is there going to be this weird kind of goth revival i don't know what do you think is there is there going to be a medium old school yeah
1: i'm not sure about that um at all (laughs) (laughs) in (laughs) fact yeah i can see i think what's more likely to happen is uh, it's kind of our actually in terms of, I can't remember what it's called now, but there's kind of a, a powered by the apocalypse version of nineties, Tim Bradstreet vampire type stuff. Um, what is urban shadows? Was it called or something? I can't remember now, but I think yes. it's yeah. more likely that, um, people want to capture an old feeling they had and then make something or someone make something that reminds them of that time and put it out. And loads of people will go, Oh cool. I loved vampire back in the day. I'm going to play that. Hmm. There's a good potential for a lot of the story games, because they're all quite small and, and handy. There's, there's definitely a potential for them becoming a sort of secondary market if it gets mm. to a point where, you know, like an old record store where you've got all the old vinyl and you pull out that rare sleeve that you weren't expecting before and you get one. I can totally mm. see in a few years people finding an original printing of Dogs in the Vineyard or something and going like, oh, this is amazing. Even though they've got it on PDF or maybe got a newer version, that sort of thing. Uh, but if you, if you look at leisure games or places like that when you go to conventions, there's now boxes and boxes of these little pamphlet-sized games, whereas before yeah. it was two or three, just stuck on the end and didn't stand out as much as your big D&D or you know, the one-ring sleeve case edition or anything like that. Now there's you know a good chunk of books, and it, it does feel like going to an old record store or something because you kind of dig through them all and leaf through all these little books and find something that you've never heard of before and think, oh, that's cool, and they'll all be like five or ten quid. She's so quite happy to drop some money on a game like that, so I can see that being a sort of thing where we've got a collection of old, not quite massively popular games, but that were around or something that someone might have heard of, or I remember hearing about um, Night Witches, but I never got to play it, and then you find an old copy somewhere, one of the old hardbound editions or something like that. I think that's possibly something that could happen. I can't. I think your your games like uh, you know, World of Darkness are probably. They are where they are. And people games like Kersium's stuff, like Pendragon, Cthulhu, people still carry on playing now and, and always have done. So mm. that's unlikely to get the same revival, I think. But I think there's definitely a story game, indie game, you know, small press publishing revival. I think that could turn into a nice little secondary market for people who didn't get to play them when the Kickstart was out and get bored of them, but hear about them later and then discover a
0: copy, You know, one of those little Aladdin caves you, you were talking about. Yeah, well, there's going to be plenty of copies of uh, Night Witches in there, totally unplayed. Because as soon as it hit the shops, that's when people stopped. <laughs> yeah. But that's a different story. Okay, right, yeah, is yeah. Uh, who knows? Who knows? But I, I think yeah, we, we're right to sort of head towards a summary now, which is that none of us really know. But I think are we, are we broadly optimistic? I think I'm very optimistic about the hobby, um, yeah. whatever shape or form it takes, and and I think it's going to be driven by technology, mm-hmm. um, and that's going to have probably more of an impact on it than necessarily what Wizards of the Coast do with the sixth edition of D&D. It's going to be more about technology. And um, and I think, you know, the hobby will flourish, not only survive, but flourish, as, as long as there are people who just want to make stuff up and hang out with their pals. It might not look like it used to, but it will still be role-playing, don't worry. And there's space for us all. I don't think anyone will be driven out of the hobby by this. So I'm, I'm really optimistic. It, it might be interesting to think about what sort of games we play, because I think... The action adventure genre game has been dominant the whole of gaming's history, um, and there's there, but there's way more ways to play it than that right now, and I, I don't know if I don't know if like the you know the family soap opera will ever beat fantasy as a genre to play. I, I suspect not. I think I think genre stuff's there for a reason, but who knows? In, in books, you know, crime fiction was the flavour of the day at one point, and and then it was um, young adult, and, and things do change with fashions, don't they? You got any thoughts on that, mate? About what what kind of genres we might be might be drawn to in the next few years? I'm I'm desperate
1: for science fiction to come into its own. I think it really mm. should. Um, probably more as a near future thing. Or what's the state of the world today, and where's it going? And that little because sort of you know 1950s science fiction was all about these when space exploration was happening, all that kind of stuff, and what might come in the future. I could definitely see. There's a lot of stuff about transhumanism coming through and all that kind of stuff. I'd love to see that kind of near future, and not just dystopian, but you know what will it be like when we colonise Mars or that kind of stuff. I'd love to see a mm-hmm. bunch of that come out. I don't know whether it will be fantasy because you know Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, those films were absolutely massive. Something like Interstellar, yeah, it, it was all right for a blockbuster, but nobody went crazy the way they did for Lord of the Rings, did they? So I think fantasy will always be the daddy of genres, but. Due to the size of the internet and the ability to get other people, it doesn't matter what your particular penchant is. You will find people out there who are interested in it, and with Mm crowdfunding, you can produce it and probably get enough money to make it worth your time investing to produce that thing, if you want to. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that Mm -hmm. way, there'll be many diverse things, and you haven't got to worry about whether your kitchen sink drama is as popular as fantasy or not. All you really need to worry about is: are there some other people around there who want to pay it, play it, sorry, or pay for it, even both. Uh, and mm. I think that's very true, given the, the scope we've now got and the connectability of everybody. All the genres are available, and there's people who play it and people who pay for it, and that's that's going to be good, isn't it?
0: Yeah, I, I think so, and I think the future is now from that perspective, isn't it? Yeah. I think maybe, maybe it just arrived while we were um, reading out that GURP supplement that we probably shouldn't have bought. <laughs> yeah, the future's now, mate. Don't ask us. We're too old, aren't we, for all this stuff? We should have got another guest on, maybe you know, some 16-year-old or whatever to tell us what's really happening out there because I, th- I suspect my use of Little Mix has, has alienated <laughs> at least 25% of our audience already. What do we know? All right, mate. L- listen, brilliant discussion. I'd, I'd, maybe one we'll come back to. We'll have to come back to it in five years if we're still here to find out whether it was right or not. And Absolutely. Uh, they'll wonder what the old granddads were talking about. So, um, yeah, great question. And thanks ever so much to Simon, one of our one of our glorious patrons for sending that in. He's one of many glorious Patreons. Um, make sure you're one too. There's places to go for this, you know, patreon.com slash the smart party and join in. And because the discussion continues there and we'll do immediately after we post this cast. So that our patrons get a bit of a preview of that and some extra bits too. Um, and there's loads of good stuff coming in from those guys. So follow the discussion with us wherever you can, wherever you picked up this podcast. We'll be listening and um, and join us uh, next time uh, for future installments of What would the smart party do? Thanks, guys. Thank you, Baza. Thank you, our loyal listeners.